You're listening to For the Fighter in You. Sten Stray Gunderson is a leading blood flow restriction expert. He has his master's and is a PhD candidate at the University of Texas, Austin. He's a published blood flow restriction trainer and works at ROI High Performance Training, where he uses blood flow restriction for strength and conditioning, endurance training, and recovery for his clients. Sten also applies blood flow restriction in his work with Olympians and elite military personnel. He's been a high-level top competitive champion athlete in speed skating, cross-country skiing, alpine running, and an NCAA Division I soccer player and a captain at Dartmouth as a starting freshman through his senior year. In other words, Sten is a beast. Welcome, my friend. Thank you very much. That's quite an introduction. Yes, I, I, I quite a life you've around. already lived. I, think I, I feel like you should be you like around. 98 years old based yeah. <laughs> on all the things you've already accomplished. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I respect your career as, as well, and you have a lot of accolades as well. So I uh, really appreciate being here. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And your family is, is the same types of academic standing and it's just it was really fun getting to know you guys and studying what you're all about and that is primarily blood flow restriction training and the obvious question right out of the gate what is blood flow restriction training yeah so let's jump right into it uh you know over the last i would say decade or so it's really become popularized in the states um, but in reality i think we need to kind of go back this was uh, a technique originally developed in japan um, and people might know the, the name katsu, uh, which in Japanese, to my understanding, I don't speak Japanese, but to my understanding, means additional pressure. Um, and so the idea is you replace pressurized bands on the arms and or legs in order to restrict blood flow enough to cause a disturbance in homeostasis that's normally associated with high intensity exercise. The caveat here is that when we place these pressurized bands on the arms or legs, we're using light weights or light intensity exercise to achieve those same results as high intensity exercise. And again, this all comes down to this disturbance of homeostasis, which we're doing with high intensity exercise, right? You're, you're, you're pushing the muscle beyond its theoretical limit and its current limit, and you're causing adaptation from that. And we're doing the exact same thing with blood flow restriction, but now we're just altering the normal circulation within the body systemically to induce these adaptations the results are what are very um, impressive. So in order to get everybody who's thinking of staying with us for the whole show, yeah. let's talk about the benefits right out of the gate. We'll go sure. into the details of how to do it and how it works, but you know, what are some of the benefits intuitively when I think of using lighter weight, mm -hmm. I think of less results. Cause you know, I've been, and I, I love strength training. It's just one of my favorite things in the world to do. And one of the ways that I gauge whether I'm doing it well and whether I'm, you know, getting effective results is I'm able to do heavier weight for more reps. Those are kind of like my two indicators. And I love going heavy. There's something very psychological for me. Um, and I, it also, I feel like I'm doing well when I can go heavier and I can lift more weight than I lifted two months ago. Um, mm -hmm. That's the direction I want to be going in. That to me is kind of almost like the definition of anti-aging. So can you tell me a little bit about how using lighter weight would create the same, if not better results than using heavier weight? Yeah, I think, you know, multiple approaches to that question. One of the things to point out to people is that 
you can achieve both muscle growth, what we call hypertrophy, and increases in muscle strength and increases in muscular, muscular endurance with light weights, even without bands. The problem is that takes a long, long time. And the amount of volume that you need is substantial. And generally we think of lighter weights more for hypertrophy or muscle size gains. What's interesting about BFR is that when we, rest we restrict blood flow, we're seeing increases in muscular endurance, muscle size, and to a degree muscle strength, which is really the shocker when it comes to you know, our field as exercise physiologists. It, it, it sort of comes outside of the paradigm that we're, that we're normally taught and, edu and educated in school. Um, and that's kind of what makes blood flow restriction interesting as far as a tool to, to study the physiology. And again, so you, know, you can get there with lighter weights and something that I, I, I'll highly recommend is, is sort of a hybrid approach to training. Um, you know, in, in a perfect world, I don't think BFR replaces all training, um, but it works as a really good training tool to augment whatever adaptations that you're stimulating. And so, you know, one of the recommendations I do have as a practical kind of takeaway is include a hybrid session. Every so often, if you are using blood flow restriction solely, every so often you should do a, you know, a three rep max or a one rep max safely in a controlled environment to really test whether you're increasing your strength. Um, and I, you know, I agree with you. One of the, one of the nicest feelings in a, in a weight room is being able to lift a heavier weight than you than you have previously, or lift more reps of that weight. Uh, and so I highly recommend, you know, sort of testing yourself every now and again. And I think this kind of gets into a conversation about really what stimulates muscle growth and muscle strength increases. We really think about it in three terms. It's metabolic stress or how much muscle burn you're actually inducing in locally, how much and, and systemically for that matter. The second would be muscle damage, how much actual damage to the membrane within the fibers are you causing, which then leads to adaptation and some swelling. Um, before that. And then finally, mechanical stress or mechanical load, literally how much weight your joints, your ligaments, your tendons, your muscles are exposed to, to induce these adaptations in bone, tendon, ligament, and muscle. So all of those things are stimuli for muscle growth, muscle strength increase, but you don't need all of them at once. And so this is something to consider. What we see really high in when we use blood flow restriction is that metabolic stress. So that metabolic burn that you induce in that muscle is a big signal to the brain to adapt and to the muscle specifically to adapt. Um, and I'll let you, I'll kind of let you answer the, or ask another question, but this kind of feeds into one of the philosophies when we talk about um, blood flow restriction or any kind of training, you know, there is a very large neural component. You know, I, if people talk about their central peripheral and then actual central command of the brain. And really it's all one system. And so what I think BFR points out more than anything is that these adaptations are occurring primarily through neurally mediated pathways. And what I mean by that is it's really all coming from the brain and nervous system responding to the stress that's imposed on the body. And those neural networks cause or signal cascades that lead to muscle growth, muscle size, or muscle strength increases in addition to muscle endurance and these kind of things. There are some local mechanisms that are occurring just from the actual local stress placed on the muscle, but, you know, and this is sort of outside the traditional purview, but really, I think that these changes are, are neurally mediated more than anything. And it's really the brain that's really the, the command of, of what's going to happen with the muscle, both locally and systemically.
I hope I can do halfway decent job of kind of teasing it all out. So you have your three elements, you know, you have your endurance, um, your strength and your size. And let's face it, we, you know, I think everybody wants some combination of the three and for, you know, some people, one is more important than the other two. And for some people they want, you know, all three kind of the same. Um, but it's nice to know that blood flow restriction does positively affect all three categories. And I, you know, so I guess like the next question that, that, that kind of comes to me in that regard is when, when I'm looking at less damage. So I say, mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere about the blood flow restriction. You can get just as much of a pump, just as much uh, effects, but with less damage to the muscle. Can you kind of um, clarify what that means? Because when mm-hmm. I think I, I thought I was trying to damage my muscle as a stressor so that it actually repairs itself bigger, better, and stronger, Steve Austin style, bigger, better, and stronger. Yes. And that's absolutely right. Uh, you, and traditionally we thought that that was necessary, um, to induce muscle size increases or muscle strength increases. Um, but it's one, it's simply one of the mechanisms by which you can induce muscle hypertrophy, muscle size and muscle strength. Um, we know we need to build, we need to break down in order to build up. Um, and in reality that, that works very well. Um, what BFR, the reason why we typically say that it doesn't cause as much muscle damage is because we're using lighter loads. And so when we actually have lighter loads, there's less physical tearing. You know, we don't, you know, I think people often confuse muscle damage with the actual tear, like literal tearing of fibers. Really it's disruptions in the, in the membrane that are, you know, just like any other cell in the body, it has a membrane around muscle cell and you're causing disruptions in that. And so you're getting a little bit of leakage of, for example, calcium, right? That's, that's stored in the muscle. And these are all signals that cause, you know, first inflammation and then second adaptation to handle subsequent stress. Um, so when we talk about muscle damage, it's, a, it's an important and I would say critical factor, um, but there are other mechanisms by which you can increase muscle size. And you alluded to the idea of the pump, right? Well, when you say pump, um, really what that is, is well, really two things. One of it is increased blood flow into that muscle. And in the case of blood flow restriction, we're getting actual uh, restriction of venous blood flow, which is the, the blood coming out of the muscle back towards the heart. We're sort of damming that process up. So we're getting a lot of flow into the muscle, but we're not allowing a lot of flow out of the muscle. And this creates what we call the pump, right? When you're in the gym, you're squeezing really hard. You can feel your muscles tense up and swell up. Part of that is also some changes in fluid dynamics and changes in concentration gradients, which lead the muscle to actually increase the muscle cell itself to increase in size as well. So between the water that you're getting to the muscle, the salt that's in the muscle and the blood flow that's increased in the muscle, we call that the pump. And those are all outside of what we'd call muscle damage. Um, So again, to clarify, to kind of come back to your original question, blood flow restriction is a great way to get a big pump without inducing a lot of mechanical act and load on the muscle and actual damage to that muscle because of that mechanical load. And what's really interesting, and you know, I think this is an area ripe for research, and one of the reasons why I'm in this field, is we need to do more research on the precise mechanisms that are at play when we're talking about muscle damage, no muscle damage, BFR, no BFR, um, because we are seeing these increases in strength and size, um, and we can't fully explain them. I mean, anybody who tells you that everything is completely figured out in terms of muscle 
uh, protein synthesis in terms of muscle size, strength, even endurance, um, you know, there's still a lot on the table that's, that's left to be studied right now. Um, but again, sorry, I, I, you know, I feel myself kind of trailing into a different topic, but I think to come back to your original question, the reason why we're not damaging on the muscle a lot is because we're using light, lighter loads. Caveat to that is any new exercise, regardless of load, is going to induce a little bit of muscle damage. So if you're just starting out with this stuff, you haven't resistance trained in a long, long time, and you go down and try to do 20 push-ups, you're going to cause a little bit of membrane disruption in that muscle, in that muscle fiber, and you will be pretty sore. So, you know, I, in, in people who are using this for the first time, one of the things that we often hear is the first few days, first three sessions, they're, they're going to be sore. And I think that's mostly because of the, A, the new stimulus, the new changes in blood flow, this restriction, and a little bit of muscle damage just from being a novice resistance training athlete. So to, to, to clarify, damage is good or bad? Is it something you're going for? Or is it something you're trying to avoid? Damage can be good. When we're talking about blood flow restriction, muscle damage is not the goal. So when we're talking about strength gains in a sports context, um, it can be good. The problem with muscle damage is it takes longer to recover from. Those proteins need to resynthesize in the muscle, and that slows down the next time, or that slows down the amount of time that you can do your next session. It requires more recovery. And so when we're thinking about these things, you know, as a trainer, you need to kind of think about all these different variables for this specific person. And so a lot of the time, a lot of my prescription will be, well, it depends. What are the goals of the individual? Where are they, where are they currently in their training? What are, what are they trying to get out of this? And if they're trying to just feel better, if they're trying to have a workout every day, then I don't think muscle damage is really the goal here. Um, you know, if they're, if they're looking for anti-aging longevity, I'm not sure that muscle damage is necessary and it can set them back in terms of the recovery. So again, I, I, you know, and all the muscle physiologists are going to kick me if I, if I don't have this caveat, muscle damage can be very, very good. And it's a great stimulus for muscle growth may not be necessary. That's a great distinction. I'm, I'm glad you teased that out. And I'm glad we really drilled down on that because I, I yeah. think that will be something that um, a lot of people are thinking about as they listen to this, because that's what we've been told for the last right. 50 years is you need to break down the muscle in order to get it bigger and stronger. So it's it, this, I can see a lot of applications for this, not only with your elite athletes that you train who have a training schedule and need to get to X amount and they can't be sore the next day because they need to get to X amount, but also for people who are possibly sick, um, you know, have types, different types of ailments, which I want to touch upon later, but uh, you know, um, they can't come in and, and do 35 pound dumbbell curls. They can barely do five pounds. So, you know, how do they get in back into the gym? And this could, I can see this as a wonderful adjunct to, and a, you know, great, way to make that beachhead. Absolutely. And you know what you just hit on a, a huge application of BFR, you know, whether you're an elite athlete or a young athlete, aspiring athlete, um, the way we use BFR is to sort of augment the training that we're already exposing that athlete to. And if we can reduce the muscle damage, we can increase the recovery rates. Uh, we can have more training sessions, more volume over the course of a week or a month or a training phase. And without inducing a whole lot of muscle damage. And so, you know, a lot of the time we think of this off season, on season phase 
of an athlete's cycle. In the off season, that's the time to sort of break an athlete down and cause that muscle damage really so that they can really grow out of that. And they, they have, it's basically a luxury to cause muscle damage in a sport. Now, when they're in season, their focus is performance. And, that, and depending on the sport, you're going to induce a certain amount of muscle damage just from that sport. Um, you know, my sport was soccer. You know, you play a 90 minute plus, plus extra time. Um, you're going to induce some, some muscle damage. Um, but you don't want to be doing, inducing that muscle damage in your training sessions that are getting you ready for the next game, um, generally speaking. So this is a great tool to use in an in-season capacity to maintain strength, to maintain muscle size, but not break down the muscle so that you're then impaired or inhibited for the actual performance. Would you say that it is, um, that it's better than other types of exercise or that it's just its own space has its own benefits, um, you know, that other forms of exercise don't have. Is it something that you just hang your hat on for everything now, or is it just one of many modalities that you use? Yeah. Uh, great question. One of the things I, I kind of need to do as a, uh, both a scientist and a trainer is sort of put my scientist hat on and then put my trainer hat on. And, uh, part of the reason for that is generally speaking, the research is research that you hear about in a paper, for example, those are anywhere from two to three years old data. When you're talking, when you're talking about a textbook, that's, that's a decade old data. Um, when you're talking about when you go to a conference, for example, with one of these ACSM or, NA, or NASM conferences, that's maybe a year to six months old data. When you're talking about performance and working with athletes, this is sort of where the data, or so this is sort of where the science follows. So, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, kicking myself if I use anecdotes as a scientist, but as a trainer and as a coach, it's really important to follow these trends and notice what's happening in your own athletes. And so some of the things that I've seen in my own athletes is this um, sort of unexplained increase in performance. And, you know, my dad and I have gone back and forth on this. There's something that going on with blood flow restriction that we have not as a, as a scientific community figured out fully. Um, there are some change, there's some augmented hormonal changes that, that are otherwise very difficult to achieve with traditional training. And so that doesn't mean that you can't achieve them with traditional training, but blood flow restriction is a great tool to be able to augment any current training or uh, stimulate these hormonal responses that are, that are necessary for muscle growth, muscle size, and ultimately performance in, uh, increases. So, you know, again, trying to, trying to ride that line of, you know, what's, what is the data showing versus some of the anecdotal experiments that we've had on our athletes and some of the methodologies that we use with our athletes. Um, it's, it's difficult to tease out, but, um, I think there's something over and above, uh, traditional training that BFR can elicit. Uh, but it's more of a chronic thing uh, in, in a long-term training cycle. Um, and not to get too much into the weeds, uh, but if you pulse these things in the right way, they can be used really effectively. And I think that's really where um, BFR can take off is in the expertise in the coaching and really understanding what's, what's, what the BFR is doing for that individual. Um, so all the surmise uh, to answer your question, I think, uh, you know, on one, on one hand, BFR is not different than regular training. It's just, a, it's just another way, another mechanism to induce adaptation. On the other side of things, um, 
this is, and if you've ever done it, and, and I know you have, there's something distinctly different. There's a different feeling associated with this type of training, uh, both during and after the training session. Um, so I think, again, you know, very conservative answer here. I think there's, there's much to be discovered. Um, and there may be some things going on that we have not yet uh, really elucidated or illustrated properly. That's uh, a great answer. And I, I love the word you used, pulse. It always seems to come back to that. You know, like we, we have the human tendency to say this or that and to try to create artificial boundaries. Yeah. Um, we almost do that in medicine, don't we, with the human body? Like we have all these specialties and we're acting like they're not all working together. Like everything works together. It's exactly. obviously holistic just by, you know, visual evidence, the body is all together. It's all one unit. Yes. And so it's sort of that way with, for me, I love the word pulsing because when I was trying to tease out, do I want to do this all the time or do I want to keep doing my heavy stuff? I realized keep the confusion principle really comes into play here uh, where, okay, on some days I'm going to do the blood flow restriction and let my ego go and just do lightweight and high reps. And then other days I'm going to go in and make sure that the strength is still there mm -hmm. and, um, and get that, you know, get that different type of feeling and like both are good and both have their places. Um, and one, correct me if I'm wrong here, but one, they, they help each other. They're almost synergistic in nature. Absolutely. You know, I think this can kind of go into a conversation about what we are doing when we're lifting heavy loads versus light loads. And by the way, just like you would use progressive overload in a traditional training scenario with, with normal heavy weight, um, you should, I encourage you and any users out there to use BFR with progressive overload as well. You know, if you are getting stronger, then using a, a load between 20 and 30% of your one rep max will increase over time. And so, you know, start out small, always be conservative when you're training, always, always be on the lower end, especially when you're talking about blood flow restriction, because we're not, we are not trying to induce the muscle damage, but you should gradually increase your weight just as you would in a normal context. Um, so again, we're not reinventing the wheel here. There, there may be some things about BFR that are distinct from normal training, but the same principles of training will always apply. Um, you know, sport specificity is another one. You know, you need to, you need to do the things that for what for your sport are required consistently over time. Expose yourself to these things. Um, to come back to your question, I hope I hope I answered it. Um, this idea of pulsing and kind of confusing the body is is a is an important one. Um, I think for the most consistent results, it's it's good to sort of track these things through time and keep certain parts of your training consistent. You know, how many, um, how much volume you're getting can kind of uh, differ based on, on the training phase. Um, but, you know, performing similar type movements, um, exposing yourself to a certain degree of mechanical stress um, are all really to the good and will stimulate slightly different adaptations in the muscle. And so, uh, really what we're trying to do with BFR, as I kind of alluded to earlier, we're trying to induce a lot of metabolic stress. And so you can kind of think about your program in terms of that. Like, are you getting a little bit of muscle damage here? Are you getting a little bit of mechanical stress here? And then with BFR, can we induce a maximal metabolic stress that will, that will augment those other two factors, right? And so you're kind of working in this synergistic way um, in order to, to, to get the results that you want. Um, that's what I would say.
What was it about the blood flow restriction, maybe specifically in terms of results that lit you up um, and made you decide to sort of dedicate your professional life to this as a modality? Was it, was it results that you're getting in your athletes or your military personnel that you train? And if so, what were those results? Yeah, great question. I, I, I haven't gotten this question before. So uh, really what it was for me was a personal uh, performance increase. So um, taking back my, my dad, uh, Jim Street Gunnarsson, has been really at the forefront of athletic performance for the past 30 years. And, you know, he, he and his colleague Ben Levine came up with the high-low, live-high, train-low protocol, where you live at high altitude, you train at low altitude to maintain um, uh, output, right? So at altitude, you actually have a reduced ability to, to work, to perform work. At sea level, you can maintain that. So the high-low is you live at a high altitude, you stimulate hemo hematological changes, increases in red cell mass, increases in blood volume, but then you train at a, you maintain your training intensity at a lower sea level. And so by doing that, you can sort of like, like we just said, you can pulse your training and actually achieve better results. Um, so he was really been at the forefront of this. He's really interested in hypoxia, which is one of the things that EFR does locally in the muscle. And he was approached by um, a BFR group and really started to investigate this with himself. Well, the best way to investigate this stuff is to get, give it to your athletic kids. And so <laughs> I was actually in my junior year uh, playing soccer at Dartmouth and started using this, this modality for my own uh, training and with the guidance of my, of my dad, obviously. And I was initially very skeptical, even though this was coming from my world-renowned expert dad, I was still extremely skeptical. You know, he's trained us well to, to, to be like that. Um, but I was just blown away by the results that I was achieving. And this was, this was on top of um, the training that I was already doing with my team. So you could argue that I was getting a little bit more volume, which could be affecting things. Um, but there was something over and above even that small increase in volume that was happening when I was using the bands. And it was really probably the most notable practical difference that I felt is, you know, I was playing left back or right back, which is sort of the outside defend, defender on the soccer field. And so I would make runs up and down the field. And in particular, I would have to make a run up the field and then make a critical cross or a critical pass or take a critical shot, be technical with my feet, which as you can imagine, is very difficult after running a full sprint, 60 or 70 yards. And so that's really where I noticed the biggest effect is probably in what we would call muscular endurance is both having more energy, having more technical ability in that final space and having the wherewithal and, and being used to this metabolic burn, this really systemic burn in my legs um, after being exposed to BFR. And so that was really what keyed me in and said, hey, there, there's something going on here. Um, I proceeded to kind of share it with my teammates and they were also achieving similar results. One of my good friends, um, uh, you know, uh, throughout that process, he was also on the team. Uh, he, you know, really exploded as an athlete. Uh, we were working on a lot of stabilization, a lot of explosive type movements with and without the bands, and he just exploded as an athlete. So both in my own personal experience, feeling the difference and seeing it in my other teammates really led, led me to try to pursue this as a, as a, as a scientist and, and try to understand what's happening mechanistically, both, you know, from the cardiovascular point of view, from the muscle point of view, from the neurological point of view, and really try to understand what's happening here. So we know that you're working with elite level athletes, including Olympians. 
what types of results have you gotten with these elite athletes with the blood flow restriction training? Yeah. So, and to clarify, um, I am working, I'm not working directly with any Olympic athletes. Um, I have worked with elite military personnel, um, and really just more as a overarching guide to their training. Um, I'm, I'm talking to their coaches, their performance coaches, you know, every elite athlete has, you know, five different coaches, one, one that they work with very closely, but they have a whole team around them. And so, um, I see my role as more of a, uh, an advisor, um, and, and consultant. Um, now I do know some of these athletes very well. So what I've seen, and this is really, again, coming kind of stemming away from the general population with athletes, there's always this balance of this catabolic, right. Breaking down and this anabolic effect of training. Um, and so the primary way in which we use blood flow restriction for those athletes is to tilt that balance more towards building up and less breaking down. Sort of what I alluded to earlier with, you know, you don't want to be breaking down an athlete in the middle of their season. And so one of the things that we see is just overall a, a, a general sound sense of being sharper, being more ready for a training session, a given training session, better recovery. And one of the ways that we actually quantify this is using heart rate variability, which some of your audience may be familiar with. Um, we use several systems to assess heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is really an assessment of the parasympathetic tone of your nervous system. So when we have high variability, and what we mean by that is there's variability between beats within the heart. So you, you might have a beat every second, and then it changes every 0.8 seconds, and then 0.7 seconds, then 1.2 seconds. There's a little bit of variability between those, each one of those QRST waves. And the more variability indicates greater parasympathetic or the rest and digest state. And most of the time, we want to be in that parasympathetic rest and digest state in order to maximize recovery. The times where we're in that sympathetic state are really going to be that really that fight or flight, that high cortisol, high dopamine, these sorts of things. We want that during the training session, maybe in and around the training session, and then basically no, none of that throughout the rest of the day. And you're having a parasympathetic state. And so one of the things that we see is, and this plays into the rate of recovery, athletes in general will have a better heart rate variability score. We're seeing this with athletes when they use these BFR consistently. And again, maybe this comes down to the hormonal response. Maybe this comes down to the muscle, the lack of muscle damage that you need to recover from that puts you into the sympathetic state. Maybe it's this neurological adaptation. Maybe it's a, a full on cardiovascular adaptation. Um, so there's both acute and chronic effects that we're seeing, but I would say that's probably the most notable as far as a, a given training cycle is concerned. And so, you know, again, that, has implications for the general population, because if we're in a more parasympathetic state, if our rate of recovery is better, we're not going to be as stressed, as sore, as fatigued from a given workout. And we can go excel in all the other areas of life that we have. You know, the other thing is a lot of the protocols associated with BFR are relatively short in duration. And so this frees up time to do other parts of your training or to experience other parts of life. You know, for example, before this, before this podcast, I just did a quick 10 minute full body sort of workout in order to sort of 
turn on these symptoms, wake my body up, um, but also have a little bit of endorphin release, have a little bit of uh, dopamine and, and all these in, in a little bit of serotonin so that you're up, you're awake, you're ready to, uh, to, um, to communicate, to convey ideas. Um, we know that regular exercise with or without BFR stimulates cognition. And so that is a huge piece as far as decision-making, critical thinking, all these different things, communicating. And this you know, goes from the executives who are getting ready for a meeting to those athletes who are, you know, need to perform on the field. You know? So there's a ton of different applications for this. Um, but I would say sort of the, the more systemic effects are the more profound effects that I see in athletes rather than any little measurement one little piece of measurement on, you know, are they growing more muscle doing it this way? Uh, you know, maybe it's like 2% difference. You know, I see more of a robust, profound effect in sort of the systemic things that we're seeing. Yeah, really it, allowing someone to perform at an elite level, it's, it's that it kind of tweaking around the edges. And, exactly. and when you were talking about the heart rate uh, variability, you know, what came to my mind is animals. They seem to have that down where they can have, you know, the deer, has intense adrenaline, intense focus, intense muscle speed, all of the things you need to get away from that lion. And then when it's away from the lion, it goes right back down. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's all it's adrenaline and amygdala types of functions are gone immediately. They don't, animals don't ruminate like, like humans and sit there and suffer uh, for two or three days about something that happened, you know, 48 hours ago. Um, Absolutely. Is that, is, that, is that an accurate portrayal of the heart rate variability? You're talking about the ability to get right back into almost a meditative state for recovery? Yes. Uh, you know, I am not a zoologist, but um, what, you sound, what you said sounds just about right. Um, you know, I think this also deals with the idea of consciousness, right? If we're getting really, really deep into the weeds, um, when we have consciousness, that makes us self-aware. When we're self-aware, we can be critical of ourselves and have these sort of um, non-physically stimulated stress responses, right? So you're worried about an upcoming deadline. You're, you're worried about a relationship. You're, you're stressed about X, Y, or Z. If we can minimize those things, because these things are normal, they're part of human nature, we can minimize these things in our athletes and induce a little a more relaxed state simply by the training modality that we're using. It's all to the good. And I, I mean, I, again, this is, this is why, you know, going back and forth between BFR and regular training, regular training does this. I mean, people who train, um, you know, with high intensity uh, with these sort of things, you do see a reduction in stress markers. Um, because you're exposing yourself to this intense stress and you have to recover from it. So um, in general, it's a great way uh, to um, have a relaxed state. I think the caveat with this for both athletic and general pop is the duration of that is so much less and you have to do so much less total volume to get that same effect. Um, so I think it all plays into it. You know, when you're constantly stressed, you're, you know, we see this a lot with the, we talk about the female athlete triad a lot in, in, in our field. And, um, basically essentially what that is not to bore the audience, but essentially, um, uh, it's made three main factors, um, that lead to sort of this catabolic, really positive feedback loop for female athletes, uh, that has to do with eating disorders, uh, you know, amenses, 
and uh, reductions in bone density. And that's all coming from chronic sympathetic stress and cortisol that is causing, that is not allowing them to adapt properly to the training. Um, so you can throw every protocol at them that you want, um, but they're not going to respond because they're overtrained and overstressed. And so BFR is a great way to limit how much you're stressing that athlete. And it's more common than, than people actually think. Um, you know, obviously coaches are very in tune, but I'm saying general, generally speaking, people don't think about, you know, an athlete being overly stressed, but it's an extremely stressful endeavor. Uh, you know, especially when you're competing for spots, when you're having to perform for a lot of thousands of people, um, there's a lot of stress associated with that. So if we can take away some of the stress that we're giving them with their training without compromising any performance measures, then again, that is all to the good. You know, uh, what comes to my mind as, as you're explaining that is almost like with the variability that we've talked about, heart rate variability and the stressors we've talked about and the word, which is just such a great word, pulse to pulse. Pulsing seems to be kind of the, the secret sauce, right? The secret ingredient in the secret sauce is to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the pulsing because I do want extreme cold. And then I want to come right out of it, warm up, meditate, give thanks for my blessings, be grateful, and then maybe go do extreme hot and then come out of it and give thanks for, for the, the extreme hot. But if I do either of those two for too long, they're incredibly dangerous versus incredibly health inducing. Exactly. It's, it's all in the dose, right? A lot of, a lot of these training modalities and, and biohacking modalities are very dose dependent. Um, and so it is important to pulse and it's important to start things out gradually. Um, I think, you know, and, and coming back to the idea of BFR, be, str be strong is one of the more comfortable and one of the safest ways of performing blood flow restriction that you can. Um, and that's sort of what, um, the company is, is really all about is, you know, obviously there are many BFR products out there. Um, but really what separates be strong from the others is the comfortability aspect. I mean, you talk to a lot of people who are doing blood flow restriction. It's really uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's painful. Um, and some of that is from the metabolic stress that you're inducing in the muscle. Some of that is the actual mechanical constriction of tissue from the cuff itself. And so if you can minimize that aspect, I mean, that's also a big factor. Um, I would say to come back to your pulsing question, all these, all these different method methodologies and training protocols, um, you need to be stimulating adaptation. And in order to stimulate adaptation, you have to perform exercise that you perform at a level of intensity of exercise or duration of exercise that your current adaptations are not sufficient to maintain. Okay. So in order, in order for you to get, to get to A to B, you have to stress the body to do that. It's not going to do it on its own. And actually, if we think about entropy, you know, if you just do nothing, you'll, you'll tend towards disorder. Um, and so you need to have this constant stress but it can't be overly stressful and it can't be underly under stressful. Uh, you need to have that balance. And I think pulsing is a great way to achieve that, to achieve that balance. Um, so it's really interesting because a lot of people will talk about these, these concepts. And I think a lot of it, a lot of it gets lost in the weeds a little bit. And so you really need to tease out what we're doing it for. What are the goals? What training phase are we in? Um, what do we, what do we want out of the session? 
And what do we want as a chronic effect of that session? Um, so these are all really important factors. I think it also pairs really well with heat stress or cold stress or high interval training, high intensity interval training, um, regular endurance training. You know, it's, it's a way to sort of um, maintain, but also stimulate further adaptation when you start pairing in BFR. You, uh, your timing is impeccable because that was going to be my next question, asking you about the Be Strong implementation sure. of blood flow restriction. Right. Um, you, your, your family has a proprietary implementation of blood flow restriction, and that's based on your dad's extensive work over decades of what works and what doesn't work in blood flow restriction. Mm -hmm. So maybe tell us a little more about Be Strong, what, you know, what it tell us about the gear, tell us about the implementation and why be strong is the way to go. Just especially in terms of not only efficacy, but safety. Sure. So to start, I think when we talk about blood flow restriction or BFR, uh, it's a really wide umbrella. So, uh, within that umbrella, we have, uh, pneumatic narrow elastic bands. We have wide rigid cuffs. We have uh, knee wraps, we have elastic uh, rubber band wraps, we have bike tires, we have, you know, we can kind of go down the list. Um, what's generally considered blood flow restriction in the literature, in the scientific literature, uh, in general, is using a blood pressure cuff and going up to a limb occlusion pressure. What I mean by that is going up to a, a pressure within the cuff that um, completely stops arterial blood flow. So kind of harking back to cardiovascular physiology really quick, we have arterial blood flow that's going from the heart to the muscle, providing it oxygen-rich blood along with other nutrients. And we have venous blood flow, where we have capillary blood flow in the middle. And then we have venous blood flow, which is basically carrying the desaturated hemoglobin, low oxygen, um, and high amount of metabolites and byproducts of muscle contraction back to the heart to be pumped into the lungs and then back into systemic circulation from there, back into the heart and then through systemic circulation. So kind of two forms of blood flow. One form of BFR restricts that arterial side of blood flow. So it's literally mechanically compressing the artery up to an occlusive, occlusive point. So no, no flow and then backing off from there to a certain percentage. And I've seen as as high as 80%, as low as 40% of what we call uh, limb occlusion pressure or arterial occlusion pressure, AOP. One of the reasons why this is used in research is um, scientists really like to measure things. And it's really, it's, it's a good way to compare between individuals and really try to control outside variability, uh, variables um, outside of the experiment. Um, speaking in a more practical sense, as long as we're inducing fatigue, in the muscle or systemically with exercise that would not normally be fatiguing or that would otherwise be trivial for that person to perform, as long as we're performing and getting to that fatigue state, we're stimulating adaptation with blood flow restriction. And so really what it's about is sort of in a sense, uh, and I kind of hesitate even saying this, but tricking the body, we're not really tricking it, we're stimulating it, uh, into thinking that the current adaptations in place are not sufficient to perform that exercise. And that's how we adapt to that exercise. So 
one way to think about left flow restriction is through venous restriction or restricting the venous outflow of blood of that muscle um, and as opposed to arterial restriction. Now, in the research, in the literature, both forms of blood flow restriction work very well. And you know, I, I encourage people to do, their, to, to do their research and read literature as far as the results that you're getting from a variety of different types of BFR. But the goal behind Be Strong is to really achieve this level of blood flow restriction in the safest and most comfortable way. And I really emphasize the most comfortable because there are many bands out there. Um, and as people have probably tried, they're not always the most comfortable. And it's, it's amazing how little amount of restriction you actually need to feel the effects. So, and it's, I, it's true. I mean, I can you, attest I'm, to that. I, I can, attest can attest to that. Yeah. Um, and there's a difference between the pain felt from the cuff and that pressurized feeling, which is okay. That's okay. It's not going to, it's not going to do you any harm versus the muscle burn. I mean, there's, there's very, there are two distinct feelings and I encourage people to really take, they are using any form of blood flow restriction, really take uh, note of that difference in feeling of, of the mechanical compression of the band versus the muscle uh, pain or muscle burn that you're getting. Can um, I interject right there for a second, ahead. Sten? Um, along those lines, it was really hard for me psychologically to do less weight. That's just my own fragile ego. But one of the other challenges, and this is what actually got me to that burn state that you're talking about, is the 30 reps. I'd never done 30 reps in anything. And it almost is, it's almost laborious to count to 30. I, I was like, I, I was amazed at how quickly I became bored, like at 24 and rep 27 and lost count mm -hmm. a couple of times. But I made myself go do the thirties based on, you know, some stuff that I watched on your dad. I said, I've got to do this. I really want to see if what these guys are talking about, you know, is efficacious. And it is in that 27th, 28th and 29th rep that you start getting the fire. And I'm like, Oh, this is a kind of a different kind of burn than I'm used mm -hmm. to. Is that what you're referring to? That's exactly what I'm referring to. And so let's, let's talk about protocols for a second, because I think this is really important. Um, this three by 30 reps, really that's what emerged out of, out of Katsu in Japan. Um, and since then, if you look at the literature, it's actually moved more towards four sets with the first set being 30 and then followed by 15 reps for the subsequent three sets. Um, so to me, what that tells me is that there's many ways to skin a cat. What we're shooting for is a robust fatigue signal systemically and in the muscle to induce the adaptation we're looking for. So I think the, th the three by 30 reps is really good, is a really good way to show how this is working. And to someone who's being first introduced to this type of training, it's a really good way, it's a really good protocol to follow because re it really makes that click in the brain where you're saying, wow, I mean, if I had this arm banded and this arm unbanded and I do 30 reps, I don't even feel it in the unbanded arm, but holy crap, I'm getting insane burn in my banded arm. It's a really good way to kind of really understand what's happening. But I think there are other protocols to follow uh, that can induce similar, similar, similar results and use slightly heavier weights. I mean, I'm not talking in the 90% of one rep max. I'm talking more in the, the, 50, the 40 to 50 range, possibly, where you're doing a max of like 20 reps. And so what you might notice and what your audience might notice if you're using BFR currently is that first set really doesn't seem too hard. 
maybe on the, on the last five reps that you're doing, maybe you're starting to feel a little burn, but most of the time, if you're using light enough weight, you're really not going to feel a whole lot of muscle burn on that first set. It's really the second, third, or even fourth or fifth rep sets rather that you're feeling the huge disturbance in homeostasis, which is really causing this stimulating the adaptations that we want. Um, so something that happens and again, coming back to this idea of blood flow restriction, one of the things that happens with a B strong band, because it is semi-elastic. So the outside is, is semi-rigid. The inside has these barrels that inflate inward towards the muscle, but upon contraction of the muscle, it has a space to go into. So the muscle will expand into the band. And when you actually, you have a band with you, you can actually see when it's not inflated, there's no elasticity. But when, there, when it becomes inflated, there's actually an elasticity to the band that is accommodating the increase in muscle volume when you actually are increasing that size during a contraction, right? So this is really the key behind blood flow restriction, in my opinion, uh, and how it can be used in a comfortable and safe way. And the reason why we can do this is because, you know, I was mentioning the arterial versus venous side of blood flow. The, the arteries are lined with these really big, smooth muscle cells that are controlling constriction and dilation of that artery. They're also thick. In contrast, the veins, they have a little bit of smooth muscle on there, but they're easily collapsible. And so for the same, for a pressure that would normally not occlude arterial flow, you can easily occlude venous flow. However, we also, on the flip side of that, every time you do a muscle contraction, you're increasing the pressure below the band sufficiently to actually push past that venous blockade, we call it, and stimulates intermittent blood flow. And so you're never creating an, what we call an ischemic environment where you're completely restricting blood flow and then contracting. That's how you really hurt yourself. Um, you can cause a blood clot. You can, you can cause really bad muscle damage, which we refer to as rhabdomyolysis. Um, when you're completely ischemic and you completely occlude everything and then perform muscle contraction, it's not a good idea. But the, the key with blood flow restriction is allowing intermittent venous flow. And so one of the phenomena that you might experience is during the exercise, especially halfway through that, that set, it actually feels better than it does when you're resting. And the reason for that is because you're stimulating a lot of blood flow with that muscle contraction. And during the rest periods, you're not stimulating that intermittent flow that you're getting with each muscle contraction. So you're not stimulating blood flow coming back out of the muscle. It's just building, 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 building. You might feel that pressurized thing. That's why the second, third, fourth, or even fifth set are so much more difficult than that first set because you've, you've pre-exhausted the fibers, you've pre-exhausted the muscle, you're allowing it pseudo recovery, sort of fake recovery in this intermittent, this, this rest period, you might feel even more pressure. Then you start pumping again. You're increasing that demand of blood. You're pumping out some of the, the waste, the byproducts in the waste through the venous circulation. And then you're resting again. So you're, so each time you're kind of, you're, let's say you're starting at a baseline here and you're doing a weight that you can maintain that whole time, but with blood flow restriction, you're slowly coming here on the first set. Then all of a sudden you start the second set, maybe you've recovered that much. Then on the second set, you're down here. Maybe by the third set, you recover this much, By the third set, you're down to here. And you have this sort of stepwise fatiguing signal that's both safe and effective, right? Normally, we need high loads right away after a warm up, of course, high loads right away to recruit specific muscle fibers that we want to grow. 
we call them the type 2a or type 2x at, at the very end of the spectrum and with blood flow restriction it's a gradual recruitment of these fibers rather than an initial onset of, of recruitment or or you know i get so to kind of a caveat in there if you're doing a five rep set obviously you're not recruiting all of your muscle fibers in that first rep but by the end of that five reps you're recruiting most of your muscle fibers if it's a maximal load with blood flow restriction you're getting there even more gradually with lighter weights we're talking with sten stray gunderson who is a leading blood flow restriction expert he has his master's and is a phd candidate at the university of texas austin He's a published blood flow restriction trainer and works at ROI High Performance Training, where he uses BFR for strength and conditioning, endurance training, and recovery. Uh, Sten has been a high-level top competitive athlete himself in speed skating, cross-country skiing, alpine running, and an NCAA Division I soccer player and captain at Dartmouth as a starting freshman all the way through his senior year, just as a refresher as to who we're talking about. We're talking about this fantastic, very interesting and exciting concept of blood flow restriction training. If you're just tuning in and uh, you guys were nice enough to forward a be strong set to me and I've been using it diligently and I'm absolutely uh, thrilled with not just, I mean, I mean, this is kind of superficial, but how it makes me look, I'm going to do a screen share and have no problem telling people I'm in my sixties and I'll do a screen share in just a second. Um, after a couple of, just a couple of sets, um, I, it was a, it was a pull day. So I was doing some, um, lat pull downs and some rows and some, some biceps, and uh, I'll, I'll sh share that screen in just a second. Um, thrilled, not just with how it makes me look, but the pump, this particular type of pump was always very elusive to me. I've never had a problem getting strong. I've always, you know, been, you know, pretty strong, especially for my body weight. I'm about 170 and I've always been like a pound for pound strong dude, but I'm an ectomorph. I'm a hard gainer. Um, and my muscle tends to just get like, if anything, smaller, it gets like more dense, especially my legs, just dense and small and skinny. And, you know, I get that kind of marathoner look still strong, but I always had trouble putting on mass. And I noticed my arms and my legs when I'm, when I'm doing hack squats, kind of puffed almost like um, there's a pump that comes with the be strong system. And I almost had that metaphor of, of a pump, like I'm pumping like blood into my arms, but it was a different type of pump that was always very, very elusive to me. And so just on that alone, I'm loving the vascularity and the, and the size of my muscles now. <laughs> so, so first off, thank you. And can you maybe speak to, you know, hard gainers, who have trouble getting a pump, you know, and let's face it, a lot of the reason why a lot of us work out is for the aesthetics. Sure. Uh, and great, great to hear of your experience. That's, that's, that's incredible. I, you know, again, I've been dealing with this stuff for almost 10 years now and uh, to hear people's first impression of it is, is always really exciting because they get as excited as, as I, as I am about it. So, so hard gainers, first of all, 
uh, it's important to realize several things when we're talking about the pump. Again, kind of alluded to that earlier. There's a both a, an acute and a chronic phase of muscle hypertrophy. That acute phase is really filling that muscle up with blood and uh, water and carbohydrates and creatine if you're taking any um, salt changes. And that's what's giving you that sort of pump. Um, you know, I, and I highly recommend uh, for people out there to, take, to be taking L-citrulline or, or nitrates. Um, nitrates are, are bok choy and arugula and beetroot juice. They're all high in nitrates, which are gonna improve blood flow. That's paired very well with this. And maybe we'll, we'll touch on that in a second. For the hard gainers out there, I think to simplify it, it's really important to realize that you're not going to gain muscle when you're not, when you don't have sufficient calories in your diet or sufficient protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. It's just going to be hard to, to gain muscle. Um, you will not gain weight unless you're in a caloric, a slight caloric surplus. Um, so I think for a lot of the hard gainers out there, um, it's just a matter of eating more food, uh, good, healthy food, of course. Um, in addition to in addition to in concert with this type of training. So that's a great, that's a great uh, picture of you there. You can see, you know, one of, one of the ways that we actually uh, make sure that BFR is working is we see the venous distension. Um, so your veins are kind of bulging there. That's, that's uh, one indication that you're at a, at a good pressure, one of many indications. Um, and just to, for those out there, um, if you're ever doing blood flow restriction, one easy way to make sure that you have uh, what we call a patent or patent artery is to check your radial pulse which is going to be um, just proximal to um, the radius on your wrist there. Uh, typically where people wear watches just under that point, just always make sure that you have a pulse. And if you're getting a pulse, then you're not occluding. Um, so for the hard gainers out there, this is a really useful tool. Again, one of the issues with quote unquote hard gainers or, or ectomorphs is just not getting enough food. So I think that's a huge factor here. Uh, but this is a really good way to chronically stimulate it as well. So we talked about the acute muscle pump. Well, let's multiply that by a 10-day period. If you are doing BFR every day in that same muscle group, you're going to see a persistent hyper hypertrophic effect. So that swelling is going to persist. And as long as you keep pumping that muscle up, you're going to see that hypertrophy uh, steadily going up. Now, this is separate from the hypertrophy we talk about when we, we're laying down new muscle fibers, right? Instead, we're filling that, those uh, muscle fibers that are already there with more blood, nutrients, uh, water, carbohydrates, all this other stuff. Um, so when you think about a, like a bodybuilder getting pumped up for a show, that's what they're doing. They're trying to stimulate blood flow in that area. They're trying to get that muscle as big as, as possible acutely. But we do see a chronic effect of this. And there's been many papers that have pointed this out. Uh, you know, over a two week period, we see substantial up to 12% increases in muscle growth, which are very profound for a two week study um, when you're performing BFR every day. So one of the biggest, you know, and I know we're kind of low on time here, one of the biggest um, applications of BFR is because we're not inducing a lot of muscle damage and particularly after you're relatively used to the exercise at first, you should always take it gradually, but you can perform it every day or, you know, for someone my age, you can perform it two, even three times per day. And that's where I think the real gains from BFR are made. And, you know, again, traditional resistance training, endurance training are all really, really good. And there's, there's almost no substitute to that feeling of being able to bench press 225 for however many reps, right? Um, but at the same time, if you're really trying to maximize adaptation and see where these bands, this BFR methodology can take you, increase the frequency of training. And you can do it in a 15, 20 minute workout, but just multiple times a day or multiple times per week. So that's where I see the real big benefit of in the chronic effect 
is how many how many uh, frequency like, can we up the frequency of the session in order to induce the adaptations that we want. Um, so sorry, I don't know if I answered your question. Uh, for hard gainers, I think you know I, I almost like to stay away from that question because frankly I'm the, I don't know and I don't think anyone really knows uh, really what's going on with these ectomorphs, mesomorphs, endomorphs. Um, it's a really difficult thing to navigate, and then there's so many variables that it's it's hard kind of hard to talk about. But I consider myself uh, more of an ectomorph. I've, I was always more of an endurance type athlete growing up. In the last five years, I've more focused on resistance training to really understand it better. Um, but it's been very difficult for me to gain muscle. However, when using this methodology, I've been able to put on quite a bit of muscle in a relatively short amount of time. Um, obviously, nutrition is a huge side of it, um, but it's definitely possible for those ectomorphs who are struggling out there. On the, on the reverse side, I know, I know several what we'd call endomorphs, some of my friends who, you know, it's, they gain fat really easily. They also respond to resistance training really well. Um, sometimes I envy them. Sometimes I don't. Um, but <laughs> it's really interesting to see the effects of, B, of BFR on those sorts of body types where there are, they're already in a caloric surplus and to see them get pumped up or, uh, or see them lean out from using this stuff is really profound. It's, it's a, uh, pretty interesting. Um, and again, you know, something that I think is right for research and uh, we need to look more into. Yeah. You know, I can see the enthusiasm in your face and in, in, you know, in the way you're sharing this information, um, just everything, you know, about your physicality, it really shows your passion for the subject. And it really is fascinating that we can sculpt our bodies we can improve our endurance, we can improve our strength. And like, it's so scientific, if you do things in certain ways, uh, and that is fascinating. Like to me, it's like the topic is, is one of my favorite topics, you know, of all times. Um, and fighting aging to me is, is fun. Like it's a real, it's, it's, uh, it's infinitely interesting, the different yes. ways you can, you can fight aging. There's been a lot of really positive literature uh, in regards to fasting and intermittent fasting, timed eating. I've been doing it now for about six months. It's one of my biggest game changers. Uh, it's moved the goalpost probably more than anything else, uh, intermittent fasting, just in terms of clearing the brain fog, um, really, really shredding my stomach, which I never could do before. Um, does blood flow restriction work synergistically with intermittent fasting in any ways? So again, kind of taking my science hat off. That's a big. Okay. I know that's that's a that's a big so, subject. Sorry. Yeah, and, I, and again, I you know, kind of being in this space, you you do have to talk about these things um, sort of in different with different contexts. Um, you know, if you're asking my personal opinion, I think there's it's, there's a great application for intermittent fasting with blood flow restriction. Um, one of the things that that you know, uh, prominent scientists in the field, David Sinclair, talks about right is this activation of AMPK which is sort of this um, life preserving pathway for lack of a better term that ultimately catabolizes fat and uh, leads to cell senescence and, and cell turnover in order to produce energy and, and maintain uh, cellular function. On the other side, we have mTOR, which is one, one mechanism by which you can increase muscle size. Um, it's also stimulated, it's stimulated by resistance training, but it's also stimulated by um, uh, excess calories. So, and, and uh, specifically leucine, uh, uh, an amino acid that's um, really critical as far as muscle protein synthesis and signaling goes. So I think there's definitely a place. I, I personally practice intermittent fasting, um, probably, probably a little bit 
less uh, time fasted than most, but I, but I also have pretty high caloric demands. And so uh, my eating window is a little bit larger so I can make sure I'm, I'm getting those and not, not losing any weight um, because I'm simply trying to maintain at this point. Uh, I really like performing BFR um, during my fast. Having said that, I do like to take um, certain supplements so as to stimulate the blood flow and the pump as much as possible. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, when you are fasted, there's less, uh, there's less nutrients that are, that are available to really uh, to increase the muscle pump, that muscle swelling that you're feeling. You know, if you're a little dehydrated, you don't have as much salt in your system. You maybe don't have as many carbohydrates or glycogen within the muscle itself. You're not going to get as big of a pump. So my kind of way around that is to supplement with some amino acids, like a five gram dose of essential amino acids, um, taking a little bit of creatine and taking um, L-citrulline and a nitrate supplement. So very, very little or basically negligible, negligible amounts of, of glucose or, or sugar, uh, zero fat. And so you're not really stimulating any insulin release. Right. So you can kind of sort of still maintain your fast. Interesting. You're not causing an insulin release, but you are increasing your amino, amino acid pool. So if you do have to burn some protein in order to turn that into carbohydrates to use as energy or sorry, uh, protein to turn into ATP to use as energy, you can, um, but you're not going to go to your own stores to do that. Um, so that's, that's right. Uh, that's a little bit of the balance that you play with this fasting game is you don't want to break down too much. You don't want to go into your own stores. Right. Um, and it's important if you are working out fasted, eat a, eat a good, generous meal, you know, within a certain time window. I know there's, there's tons of controversy out there with, you know, is it a 30 minute time window, hour time window? I'm not really, I think the jury's still out on that. Um, but if you are fasted, um, it's important to have a nice protein rich meal right after, um, or even, even if it's toward the evening, get your carbs in at that time too. Um, so to answer your question, this long winded answer, uh, there's definitely a place for it. In intermittent fasting, um, I would be careful about, you know, what we're trying to do. We're trying to stimulate the muscle pump. We're trying to stimulate stress, metabolic stress. Um, so maybe it's a good idea to take some things along with that. That won't break your fast per se. Um, you know, the, the dietitians will come at me and say, well, you are breaking your fast as soon as you put any kind of, z z uh, you know, um, zenotic molecule into your body. But I'm talking more about the, the sort of insulin response, blood sugar response, uh, fasting. And uh, yeah, kind of plan it around that. So what you're talking about really, I think is an inflection point and kind of the, it's a, it's a real fulcrum for a lot of people because in a way, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a way you're kind of either building your house or you're cleaning your house. And it seems like it's more of a balance. You know, it life always seems to come back to balance, right? And this seems to be, a balance play because I need to get enough macros to grow my quads and grow my glutes, which is, we all know is anti-aging, you know, muscle is life. Um, and for so many reasons, working reasons, working the big muscle groups, but man, I'm going to need, I'm going to need some glycogen loaded up in my muscle and in my liver. I'm going to need some protein, obviously. Um, and yet protein is what our body's trying to clean overnight with the autophagy. So like just those two things, eat more protein. Hey, my body's got to clean up the protein, eat more protein. Hey, my body's got to clean up the protein. Like it's sort of, well, what is it? You know, like for, for a lot of us out there who are novices and we're not scientific, 
it almost seems like the information can be conflicting. Do we want to be anabolic or do we want to be in a state of autophagy? I mean, what, like, how does this all land for you? Yeah. I, I echo your sentiment that there's a lot of uh, confusion out there. And, you know, let me clarify my expertise is in cardiovascular uh, and blood flow restriction. So, you know, I'm speaking a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but the best way that I've been able to conceptualize it is you have, you can have phases where you're building, right. And as long as you're hitting a certain protein requirement, there's been some numbers that have been spit out, but basically anything from uh, I've seen as low as 0.8 to us uh, to up to as high as two uh, grams per kilogram of protein um, somewhere in that window is going to be enough to uh, stimulate and maintain muscle, uh, stimulate muscle growth and maintain muscle. Uh, towards the end of, to the, towards the higher end of that is when you're really in a uh, otherwise breaking down phase where you're trying to consume enough protein to maximally stimulate what we call MPS or mus muscle protein synthesis. I kind of alluded to that earlier when we talked about mTOR and that pathway. But you know, it is you're always in this state of turnover and doesn't really ever shut off uh, unless you're eating something or, you know, actively absorbing it into your bloodstream. And even then you're, you're gonna, you're gonna excrete some of that, um, some of those nutrients as well. So well, actually one of the ways that we make sure that people are hitting their protein requirements is if they have a positive nitrogen balance, basically, are they excreting some of the protein that they're consuming, um, at, you know, as a, as a waste product, uh, are they excreting that? And if they are, that means that their muscles are maximally, uh, taking up that protein. So, you know, to, I kind of gone away from your question. It's very, it's, it's, there's a lot of confusion out there. What I want to harken back to briefly is on this fasting thing. Um, you know, people talk about it in terms of weight loss. People talk about it in terms of the cognitive benefits, as far as weight loss is concerned. Um, really what it comes down to is calories in calories out. Now there's a bunch of different variables in there that affect that, but as far as putting on muscle or losing fat, it's, it's, it's simply, uh, it comes down to the calories. Um, and in terms of building muscle, it comes down to the calories plus the protein requirements of that muscle. So, you know, I, I would encourage others to do their own research as far as, you know, what recommendations they should do as far as fasting, as far as, you know, five or six meals a day, you know, what their protein requirements are. Generally speaking, as long as you're hitting a certain protein requirement um, that is sufficient for you to build muscle on a per day basis, um, that could be two meals, that could be eight meals, right? But as long as you're getting a certain number amount of protein um, over, over the course of the day, the, the literature indicates that that's probably sufficient to maximally stimulate uh, muscle. Good numbers to know. And I know that what I'm about to say is anecdotal, but nonetheless, it is what is real for me, the intermittent fasting has been to date the biggest game changer for me, just in terms of moving, you know, moving the ball down the field. It, I, I had really bad sciatica for a long time and I had no idea what it was. This is before I started biohacking and, you know, I'd be at a television conference having to hoof, you know, like some big conference in Vegas. And it was, everything is about walking. And back then it was all about tapes and, and hard drives and, you know, showing your shows to different television executives. I can remember carrying, you know, my suitcase or my backpack with the sciatica and just soaked with sweat in, you know, my back on fire. And when I first discovered the intermittent fasting and, and tried it, 
the very next day, literally zero pain in my body. And it was wow. so directly proportional. It was so obvious from mm -hmm. like, you know, having five years of back pain and knee pain and just always being inflamed that just not eating had yeah. completely mm -hmm. solved the problem. It was, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, again, this is, this is a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but I, you know, anecdotally speaking, I've, you know, count, you know, dozens of stories like, like the one you just said. And I wonder, you know, anytime we're consuming food, it's going to be associated with a certain amount of oxidative stress because you need to break that food down. Uh, then those molecules associated with the food are now flowing through your, your bloodstream. And that's going to cause more oxidative stress. That oxidative stress leads to inflammation and that inflammation leads to sensations of pain. Right. And so there could be, again, there's a number of variables probably going on here. Uh, you could be more or less inflammatory based on what foods you're eating as well, but eating no food and sort of uh, uh, converting your body to a more fat oxidative state uh, with this metabolic flexibility that you can um, induce with fasting, I think can be to the good and maybe responsible for some of the things that you're experiencing, right? So if there's less inflammation, you're going to have less pain in those areas. Uh, it may be a certain type of food, or it could just be food in general. So um, again, pulsing when you eat, pulsing how much you eat, um, you know, comes back to these same principles that we're following with really anything. Um, uh, but as again, I, I want to emphasize for those of for those people who are out there fasting, and they're not trying to lose weight, they're actually trying to maintain muscle and things like that. It's really important to hit their protein requirements and their caloric requirements. Um, now, again, when we're talking about some of the anecdotal effects or the sort of the uh, personal effects that you're feeling, whether you have more energy, less brain fog, uh, lower inflammation. I can't exactly speak to the science of that, but I have, I have heard these responses and, you know, I, I myself practice intermittent fasting more because I wanted to see what all the hype was about. Um, and it turns out that it's almost, for me, it's almost more of a, just out of convenience, you know, not having to uh, make breakfast first thing when you get up. Um, saves you a lot of time. I'm in, my most productive hours are, you know, between 6 a.m. and and 1 p.m. Um, and I'm generally not eating in that window. So um, I think it can be really advantageous in those regards as well. Um, you know, one of the things that training does as well, similar to this fasting, is after you get used to the exercise, obviously there's this acute inflammatory response. You have acute increases in oxidative stress, acute increases in inflammation, but over time your body is better able to handle inflammatory insults. So it's sort of preconditioning your body to handle further stress. And that's really what exercise is all about in many ways is uh, at least in, you know, past a sports performance setting, are you making your body more resilient to other forms of stress? Um, that's a huge application of exercise and specifically BFR, you know, with BFR, you can do it in a shortened time window and then do some great amount of stress and then without as much damage, and you can see the sort of the chronic effect that kind of emerges out of that. We're talking with Sten Stray Gunderson. He just mentioned the word BFR. That stands for blood flow restriction. He is a leading expert on BFR and really giving us a massively beneficial data download here this afternoon. I'm very appreciative, Sten, for all you've shared with us so far. My pleasure. Um, and you also uh, represent a proprietary form of blood flow restriction called be strong and it's a it's a wonderful set maybe if you wouldn't mind telling us 
um, kind of like uh, like a bullet round here. I'm going to ask about different ailments and whether blood flow restriction would be efficacious efficacious in um, addressing some of these various uh, ailments. Sure. Uh, one, I just want to I just want to clarify before oh, yeah, you go into please. that. Um, you know, I just want to give a shout out to all of the BFR experts out there because, you know, I am one of many. We're all moving this field forward. And, um, you know, there's some really, uh, really cool stuff going on in the scientific literature. So I just want to, um, you know, take that little chance to give a shout out because we're not in this alone. Um, many people are realizing the profound effects of these things. And uh, I'm simply trying to add to the literature and, and add to the, the, pop, the growing popularity. So just with that, go ahead. Well, thank you for that. Thanks for that distinction and, and your humility, because you you really are, you know, uh, one of the leading contributors in this space, your family, especially. Um, and so thank you for that uh, distinction. Um, and, you know, while we're at it, that's a that's a great point to um, in case someone, you know, has their pen and paper out and they're wondering how they can find out more about what you're doing. Maybe could you give us a you know a couple of your social media addresses or web URLs for people to get in touch with you guys or if they want to pick up a Be Strong kit or learn more about it? Yep, uh, people can go to bestrong.training uh, to check out our website. There's a bunch of information on there, some FAQs, uh, some protocols to follow, um, in addition to some testimonials, and obviously you can you can purchase your bands there as well. Uh, I I have not dipped my my uh, i've dipped my toes in social media but i haven't jumped in uh guns blazing yet uh i think it's about time i get more of a public profile but for now uh, i would i would kind of uh send people to to the website to kind of check it out from there um there's some helpful videos as well uh, is the website. b strong b e or just b sorry yes b the letter b strong dot training is, is the is the website and b strong uh one of the uh reasons we came up with be strong obviously who doesn't want to be strong but um, also the B sort of stands for the barrel design, which is sort of uh, the primary uh, factor when it comes to the B strong bands. I kind of alluded to it earlier, but we have a barrel type system where there are segments of inflation and segments of there's little gaps within those. Uh, the B kind of stands for the barrel design here. So as we can see, there's sort of segments that are inflated. And right now there's very little air in there. And as I pull it, there's not a whole lot of give, but when we go to inflate, pump it up to a reasonable pressure here, all of a sudden those barrels are starting to pop out. You can see that. And now there's flexibility in the, in the system. And so if you imagine this sort of around the limb, the air is pressuring, pressing into the limb, but it also is giving with each subsequent contraction, which makes them comfortable and, and relatively safe. Um, and so all the way up to the pressure of 500 millimeters of mercury, which as some people might notice way above systolic blood pressure, we're not occluding anything. We're not actually causing a 500 millimeter mercury pressure onto the limb. We're just increasing the pressure within this system to have a certain amount of restriction. What does um, mercury pressure mean? Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's okay. So millimeters of mercury is just uh, another way, is, is a pretty common way to assess pressure. Uh, you could use atmospheres of pressure or PSI, uh, 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 pressure per square inch. But also, uh, it's really the main way that people use for blood pressure. So if you've ever heard, you know, the ideal blood pressure of 120 over 80, right? 
what that is is systolic blood pressure measured in millimeters of mercury over 80 uh, uh, diastolic pressure of 80 millimeters of mercury. So millimeters of mercury are basically how much pressure it, it requires to move. And way back in the day when they actually used to use mercury as a way to assess pressure, uh, it was how many millimeters of given pressure would cause a change in that mercury. So that's kind of where millimeters of mercury came from. Okay. Um, it's a tongue twister as well. So just, it's another science, science thing where we like to, like to sound smart. Uh, <laughs> I'm old uh, enough to remember the mercury as well. I remember the big thing was do not eat that. <laughs> right. Don't eat it. And they actually got rid of it. Uh, but it's, it's one of, it's one of the gold standards for, for assessing blood pressure. They got rid of it because of, you know, it happens to leak out or something. You don't really want to expose yourself to mercury. Uh, right. But yeah, that's kind of where it came from. And um, you guys have a, 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 a lots of different configurations of gear that can come with different types of uh, B-Strong setups, but mm -hmm. essentially it's the bands that go around the top of the legs and the bands that go around the top of the arms and the natural folds between the delt and the bicep for the upper arms, right? And between what the quad and the groin for the, for the legs. Yeah, I, th uh, I also use uh, right where the glute meets the hamstring. So kind of right, uh -huh. right, right in there. Okay. Um, and actually, a little little pro tip here. Uh, you know, you can put this on uh, straight on, but actually the anatomy of your arm kind of actually kind of goes up with the tricep. So if you actually put a, a little bit of an angle, it'll be the most comfortable. Like so. Uh, interesting. Um, up a little and, bit in the back. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And generally we want the nozzle facing inward and we want this metal part of it on the outside of the limb. So same thing with the, with the legs. Um, okay. And then the white pump that, that valve that people saw that points in is where the pump attaches to. Right. And so that's the reason to kind of have it facing inward. So it's an easy attachment yep. to the actual pump. And um, I was wondering whether it would be a headache to put them on. They're very easy to put on. Uh, they're very, uh, and, and, and I'm not, and by the way, I'm not being sponsored here. <laughs> I probably will um, have an affiliate code or something along the lines of a discount code, but this is, this is, you know, I, I would never have this podcast if I didn't think that um, it was efficacious and it, it has moved the needle for me. I love awesome. how vascular I get and the increased size. Uh, and, you know, in the strength as well, I, the strength one so far, I've noticed that the size, the aesthetics and the vascularity are the big mm -hmm. move for me. And I'm, the jury is out on the strength for me so far, because I haven't right. really gone back and strength tested. I've been okay. using the be strong now for about two weeks. I haven't gone and strength tested um, yet. I wanted to give it a real, you know, long uh, test and make sure that I was giving it every chance to increase the strength before I actually test for it. Absolutely. I think the muscle size and the vascularity are pretty obvious to the first time user. Um, the, the literature indicates, the data indicates that we are increasing strength as well, muscle strength with this as well. And that's what's kind of turning heads as far as the science goes. It's like, well, how is this exactly working within our existing paradigms? But um, strength, when it, com it comes down to intensity, it has to be an intense effort. And then actually the intent of the exercise is really important as well. Um, so if you are looking for strength increases, getting to near failure or within, you know, 
two to three reps of failure is very is critical for that strength um, because the mechanism by this by which this works again is that gradual recruitment of motor fibers of muscle fibers uh, sorry motor neurons that are innervating those muscle fibers and we want to attack those what we call those high threshold motor units which are going to be innervating those big type 2a type 2x fibers and that's those are what's the what are they the most responsive to growth but also the most uh, deterministic of strength so that's what you're trying to target with resistance training um, and in order to recruit those you need to take it to a relatively intense level now again uh, disclaimer make sure you start out gradually this is a pretty robust stimulus. So I always encourage people to start gradually and work their way up. Um, but in order to see those strength gains, you really need to push yourself, uh, particularly in those second and third sets. All right, point taken. Let's go through some ailments here. Let's and um, I have people very close to me who have osteopenia, um, the precursor to osteoporosis. And from what I gather, uh, Weight-bearing exercise is a panacea. It's an absolute, you know, exactly Absolutely. what the doctor called for. Would blood flow restriction be helpful for someone who's suffering from osteopenia? So my first thought is that how could we stimulate bone density improvements with relatively light loads? This, this shouldn't work. Uh, what we've seen, though, uh, is we do increase bone density. Um, and actually, we have a couple of case studies uh, showing a over over a ten a ten year period gradual uh, decreases in bone density in an osteo um, in an osteopenic uh, couple, uh, then six months of BFR training using our applications our protocols uh, they were able to reverse that so they got wow. so where they they really had started at ten years prior and had gotten down to wherever they were they had about a twelve percent increase from when they started using it so that put them to about a halfway point. So basically reverse their bone aging by about five years uh, by using this for, for six months. Um, how this is happening, um, again, I think it's still up for debate. Uh, the thing is, even though you're minimally loading, you're still loading. And so you're, you're still stimulating the bone to, to turn over. You know, along with muscle, bones also have the cell turnover. So you may, you may be having some denser muscle being laid or denser bone being laid um, after a session. Hormones play a big part in this and we're stimulating growth hormone with BFR. We're stimulating testosterone wow. and all wow. those things play into bone density. So yeah. again, we haven't really worked out those pathways quite yet, but again, anecdotally, we, we are seeing the effects. So I would highly encourage people who are, who are um, osteopenic, osteoporotic to to, to use this modality and also to get a hybrid going. So once you've built up a certain amount of strength with this stuff, a certain amount of tolerance, expose yourself to some, some heavier loads. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, a 90 year old uh, grandmother who's 90 pounds to start throwing on, you know, a huge, huge, uh, you know, 135 pounds on a squat rack, but I'm just saying, you know, expose yourself to a certain degree of load um, to, to augment the response that you're getting from be strong as well. So I'm glad you talked uh, about hormones, Sten, because, and you had briefly touched upon cognitive boost of mm -hmm. blood flow restriction. So many of what, uh, you know, of the ailments that are afflicting, not just Americans, but, you know, the population internationally as well, 
populations internationally as well um, uh, seem to be hormonally related. Um, you know, you look at the kids um, across the spectrum with ADHD and behavioral issues and depression and suicide and all of the different um, tragedies that come with, you know, metabolic dysregulation and all of the pain that comes with that. I am guessing that blood flow restriction will be really great for kids who have some of these behavioral issues like ADHD, but correct me if I'm wrong. You know, I, I have not personally worked with any uh, children specifically trying to address this, um, but this is a huge issue in our society in general um, that I think can be solved with exercise, you know, uh, not even to mention blood flow restriction. Blood flow restriction, you know, again, this is just another form of exercise. This is another way to get a robust exercise signal. Um, and, and the exercise itself is what's stimulating the hormonal response. Um, the problem with a lot of people is it's very difficult for many people to get to the point, the intensity of the exercise or the, the amount of disturbance of homeostasis with normal exercise, particularly if they're not very motivated. Whereas with, with BFR, we're able to get there pretty consistently in a short amount of time with relatively light work. And so that's where I see the advantage is people who don't want to spend a lot of time exercising, people who don't, either don't have a lot of time or just really hate exercising. This is a way to kind of just get it out of the way uh, in a 15 to 20 minute workout. Uh, now to answer your question about kids and ADHD. So I work with a number of uh, young children who uh, like are, in the, are, are aspiring athletes um, and some of the issues that I've seen personally so I have an athlete who has uh, osteochondritis desiccans. So basically it's a degenerative um, joint disease and she has it in her knees. Mm. And we've been working with her over the past year, year and a half. And we're actually seeing a reversal of the OCD. Mm. So not OCD in the compulsive disorder setting. OCD uh, is, you know, stands for osteochondritis desiccans in the knee itself. You know, hybrid training with using vibration therapy using some jump, better landing mechanics and uh, critically, critically use of BFR, we've been able to reverse her knee issues. And so that is a huge application. People are not really using this as much in kids, but really this stuff can be used from the 90 year old to the 90 year old and everybody in between um, for, various, for various goals. To address the ADHD issue, um, I think a huge issue in our, in our society is a lack of exercise. And this lack of exercise uh, manifests itself in um, uh, overactivity or, or over, over or understimulation of the body, overstimulation of the, of the brain and the mind. And so you're getting these really dysfunctional stress states in young children chronically. When they don't have exercise as an outlet, you, they start going down bad paths and having uh, dysfunctional behavioral patterns. I mean, I can attest to this as a kid, you know, obviously yeah. my dad being who he is, you know, he would, he would have us train first thing in the morning and we were much more, uh, uh, let's say accommodating to his directions. Uh, you know, and you can see this actually, um, you know, I've, I've uh, had the pleasure of, of having a few dogs in, in my day and, um, you know, raising them since they were a puppy. And the number one way to train a dog is to get it tired first. Uh, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden that ADHD overactivity, you know, craziness kind of goes away and they're, and they're much more uh, amenable to, to training. 
and so I think this applies even more so in humans where we have, you know, all these other stressors in life. If we can kind of just knock that out with exercise, get the body in a parasympathetic state, we'll be more resilient. And I think, um, I think that's a huge part. You know, I think people, a lot of people struggle with depression as well in this country, in this society, in the world. And uh, it's amazing the mood enhancement that you get with any form of exercise, particularly with blood flow restriction, because you can do it in such a short amount of time. So it's, you know, I'm not saying blood flow restriction can cure is the cure all answer for everything. I actually think exercise and diet and nutrition are really fundamental in, in maintaining mental health and physical health. I think BFR is a really good tool to induce those things. Yeah. Real quickly over, uh, during COVID, one of the things that came forward as being very important, it was pretty obvious was the vitamin D. And also um, I, I knew just from the past, how good I feel working out, you know, with, with resistance training. And so I, you know, all the gyms were closed. So I ended up buying a ton of equipment and putting it out on my front driveway, much to the homeowners association chagrin, <laughs> but I would do heavy lifting out in the sun and put on some great music, drink some black coffee, you know, throw a little uh, Dave Asprey's oil in there, there you you go. Know, some MCT oil yep. and, uh, and rock out in, yeah. in my mood, you know, I would, I would like triple how good I felt in yeah. one hour out in the sun. I'm saying this is freaking medicine. This is 100%. like medicine. I try to tell everybody who was bumming out and felt stuck inside. I said, you're not stuck inside. You have a porch, you have a driveway, you have a backyard, you have a front yard, lift rocks, go find a log. If you don't have equipment, find a heavy rock, you know, and, yeah. and do some high intensity training, you know, and, uh, and said, so, yeah, that's kind of, I, I, you know, as we get, I could see we're running out of time here, but as we're closing um, first, I want to thank you, you know, from the bottom of my heart for sharing everything you shared here um real quickly once again where can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about be strong and blood flow restriction training in general where do they go again sten so uh the website's be strong training uh we also offer uh education programs um and we have uh, uh, several webinars that are coming up so please please look at those if you're interested in learning more uh, how to implement it um, optimally and, and these kind of things. Um, you know, again, to kind of address that COVID thing, I think exercise is so crucial and uh, we've, we've gotten away from it as a society, you know, this whole epidemic of obesity, heart disease, we know the answers and the answers are to move more, exercise more and eat better. Um, you know, I know there's a ton of, there's a million different opinions about how to do that. Um, but I encourage everybody listening to just get out there You'll feel better. You'll be more productive. You'll be more successful. You'll be a better partner. You'll have better relationships. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's really a math equation that, that I think uh, if people can actually, uh, you know, really implement in their lives, it can be, have huge um, uh, waves of, you know, effects that, you know, go above and beyond what's happening in their own lives. Um, so it's the biggest antidepressant. I think they said that like there's no antidepressant on the face of the planet that works as well as exercise. Right. And, yeah. you know, we have a few more minutes. I want to touch upon a couple of quick things. We'll sneak a couple okay. in and they're in random okay. order. They're just okay. in random order. Um, peptides. Do you have, have you ever done any peptides at the signaling uh, molecules? 
I have not. I, I don't have much experience with peptides. Um, to my understanding, they're sort of uh, the little brother of proteins. Um, yes. So, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can speak very intelligently on them, but I, I can see their, their place, particularly in older populations or middle-aged populations where maybe you're not as good as utilizing the protein from your diet yes. um, and or you need a little extra protein uh, considering the, the kind of sarcopenic uh, aspect of aging. Um, I can definitely see their role. Again, it's going to work synergistically with any form of exercise, particularly with BFR though, because you are stimulating these hormonal responses without breaking a whole lot down. So I can definitely see the, the advantage there using peptides. Um, I think that's all I want to say about it. I don't want to, I, I don't yeah. want to mislead yeah. anybody here um, just from a, with my lack of expertise, but I would say there's definitely a, a, a role for them to play. And again, you know, for me, anecdotally, the peptides are very useful in that, you know, one of the ailments that I deal with is leaky gut, okay. um, bad brain fog after I eat. So there's digestive issues in terms of getting the macros and the micros, you know, into my cells and into the tissue where I need mm -hmm. it. Um, and coming back to that delicate balance we were addressing, you know, I need my insulin to be at a certain level if I want to keep growing muscle to anti-age, but I need to be careful about blood sugar so these protein signaling molecules seem to be a really nice way to, um, what do they call it? Uh, not upgrade, but upregulate, I guess, upregulate sure. my ability to upload these, these macros and micros, you know, into my liver and into yeah. my tissue. I like how you put muscle. that. Yes. That sound Absolutely. fair? That's very fair. Yes. Yeah. It's so important as so many are, are becoming pre-diabetic. Mm -hmm. Um, half of us don't even know we're pre-diabetic and, you know, but it's something for anyone who's in their fifties, sixties, and seventies certainly would, should maybe take a look at peptides as a, as a way of, uh, increasing their lean body mass to fat ratio and addressing, hopefully reversing some pre-diabetic, uh, conditions. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to do a little bit more homework on that and, and, and really maybe have some better answers for you later on. Oh, so good, man. See, see yeah, what I can someone... do. Someone with your gravitas looking into this would be really cool. Yeah. You can give me the scientific explanation. Awesome. Yes, sir. Um, but you know, like people just really, most people just want, what do I do? What do I yeah. do? So, you know, coupled with the blood flow restriction, you know, good nutrition, getting out in the sun, all the usual cast of characters, mm -hmm. right? Get out in the sunshine, resistance train, work your endurance, work your strength. Uh, fair to say. Very fair. Uh, set your circadian rhythm. It's good to work out in the morning, even if it's a, 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 a brief effort or just a mild exercise, but really get your systems going, uh, get your, get, set your circadian rhythm, get some light into your eyes. You know, Andrew Huberman is doing a really good job of, of preaching to the, to the masses about, uh, you know, how to sort of set your patterns. Everything runs on a clock in the body. And when, when you start that clock, it's, it's hard to reverse it. Uh, and if you don't start that clock, it won't, you know, it won't start. So, uh, it's important to do these things, you know, light exposure, heat exposure, cold exposure, uh, exercise, BFR, um, all these things uh, help a human perform optimally, whether, whatever that is, right? Whether it's a sport, a profession, relationships, kids, everything. So I, I it, it, in this Go last ahead. little, in the last couple of yeah, minutes that we have time. here, I'd love to give uh, sort of a takeaway for the, for the audience. So uh, in general, uh, that's some practical, you know, protocols to follow. Um, generally speaking, we want to use light loads with blood flow restriction. Um, one, one way to assess that is, can you, uh, 
easily complete uh, 15 reps of that load on the first set um, or, or unbanded. Uh, what I would generally recommend to people is shoot for um, 20 to 30 reps on the first set, followed by 10 to 15 reps on the second, third, or fourth set of that exercise. Start, uh, follow the guidelines uh, regarding pressures that are, that are in the, in the uh, actual package that you receive. Um, always be conservative in the pressures, but just like other principles of training, progressive overload is key. So you need to start increasing your pressures, start playing with those variables, increasing the load a little bit, increasing the, the volume a little bit. Maybe you're instead of 20 to 30, now you're going uh, 25 to 30, and now you're hanging in the 15 to 20 range for the subsequent three sets, as I mentioned earlier. Um, start playing with those variables a little bit, variables a little bit, um, but those are some good kind of staples of protocols that I would recommend just about everybody to do. The other thing is, go ahead. Last, last thing to, to mention is, yes. you know, that's, that's talking about resistance training. So reps and sets, you can also use this in more cardiovascular type training. And there's a breadth of research that's kind of emerging on that. Um, low, low, very low intensity, uh, like what you would consider long, slow distance um, for, for only 20 minutes though. So at that pace for about 20 minutes, um, has been shown to increase muscle size and muscle endurance and vascularity. So it, performing these with a more aerobic type of training also shows some benefits that I think are yet to be fully elucidated, uh, the precise mechanism, but that can also be to the good. Um, the other thing is I know people are often scared of gaining too much weight if they're in sort of a cardiovascular endurance type training program or, or sport. Um, again, what it comes down to is calories in, calories out. So as long as you're not overeating, you're not going to gain a whole lot of muscle. Um, you need to be in that caloric surplus in order to do that. So those are sort of some main things that I'd like to tell everybody who's, who's using these, who's thinking about using these. Um, and again, this is not too different from normal training. Um, it's just a good way to induce a big stimulus. All right. That's great. So if you could give us a sort of an, uh, a 32,000 foot view of sort of the, the three, four or five major important things that a person could do if they are going for that longevity, if they are going for increasing muscle mass. And I always like to say, increase your lean body mass to fat ratio, because that seems to be more encompassing. Sure. Um, but if, if that, if people are looking for just sort of three or four or five main things that they can start doing today or tomorrow, what would those be in your opinion? And you're talking about in the context of blood flow restriction? Yeah, I would say within the context of blood flow restriction, um, you know, within that training protocol. Yep. So we typically see effective uh, doses of training for, you know, about three times a week. That's uh, a pretty well tolerated and B. um, effective at inducing muscle and strength gains and in just improving lean body mass. So that's what I would recommend as a, an initial starting point. Um, if you are, if your training age is a little bit older, so you have a, you know, vast experience, you're training almost every day or training already training five days a week. Um, what I would start using it, implementing B, BFR sort of at the end of your workouts to sort of top off those workouts in a sense, um, get the most training buff, or get the most uh, efficacy for your training buck. And within that, um, you know, the way that I use it is more of a hybrid type thing. Um, so I'll do sort of like 75% of the normal volume that, I, that you, would, you would see with a traditional strength program. 
and then you use the rest of that time at 25% of that time to sort to hit those same muscle groups um, with the bands on in a 15 to 20 minute period. And so that kind of does two things. It makes sure that you're getting a big metabolic stimulus in the local, in the muscle groups that you just exercised on top of the mechanical load that you're exposing them to. And you're maximally stimulating the growth hormone that's associated with heavy exercise. So you're kind of quite literally topping off the workout and make sure, making sure that you're maximally stimulating, stimulating those adaptations. Um, also, if you're incorporating rest days, um, it's a good tool to use in your rest days. So if your rest day includes a, you know, a 20 minute walk just to get on your, uh, you know, get blood pumping, I would recommend putting the bands on for that 20 minute walk. You'll get more out of that walk than you would from just a recovery day. Um, and so if people want to stick with their regular training, um, let's say they're training three days a week, uh, high intensity, then maybe three days, uh, you know, if your total day days of training is six, three days with the bands, three days without the bands. And you can kind of mix and match, um, based on your, on, on your, on your physique goals or fitness goals. Um, so topping off, inserting them in between recovery days. And then even just if you're on the road, if you're traveling, uh, don't have access to weights using your body weight type exercises, uh, air squats uh, with the bands to help maintain muscle and lean body mass. When I am using the bands during a workout and I do those three reps, the 30, um, th three um, sets, 30 reps on the first set, 15 reps on the second set, 15 reps on the third set. Do I take the bands off at the end of that third set and then put them on again when I do the next set of exercises, or do I leave the bands on for the entire workout? You know, there's been some recent work around this idea. Uh, when we're using B Strong BFR, I would recommend keeping the bands on and inflated throughout the duration of the session. Um, now, having said that, there have been some experiments looking at post ischemia, so doing a set and then actually inflating after the set is over. Um, keeping the bands inflated during the, the set and then releasing the pressure. Uh, in my opinion, I think uh, if you're keeping things fairly rapid throughout the exercise, not taking a you know, three to five minute rest period, I would keep the bands inflated. Um, again, you're getting enough circulation just with the muscle pump itself. So I would, I would definitely keep them inflated. I would, again, total duration, I would start with 10 to 15 minutes. As you get more comfortable with BFR, I would extend, I could, you could extend it to 15 to 30 minutes. Um, if you're doing more aerobic type training where you're constantly contracting muscle in a repetitive fashion, you can keep them on for 30 to 45 minutes. Um, so that's, that would be my kind of three main practical recommendations. People who are injured or are um, physically challenged, um, let's say they may be in a wheelchair or maybe they have chronic fatigue uh, you know, challenging for them to actually exercise like that mm -hmm. is, I would imagine that the be strong and blood flow restriction training would be exceptionally effective in those exact situations, because they may have looked at a two and a half pound dumbbell as kind of worthless, like, you know, uh, what good is that going to do me, but with the blood flow restriction, that two and a half pound to be very effective for someone like with chronic fatigue or in a wheelchair. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, probably the most critical application is, is in people who are otherwise disabled or otherwise not able to perform specific exercise. Um, and that's who, that's, I think, one of the biggest um, features of BFR 
if that that's the population that we can have the most effect on because at the end of the day people who are already exercising are probably getting many of the benefits of exercise obviously bfr will help to augment uh the benefit of beneficial effects of that exercise but really it's in um, what we call clinical populations where i think there's the most to be gained one study that we were able to do here at ut is uh, trying to address this issue of sarcopenia and cachexia in cancer patients so um, for those of, out there who don't know, one of, the, one of the symptoms of cancer is actually muscle wasting. So your muscles actually degenerate in response to either the chemotherapy or the cancer itself. Um, in addition, with age comes sarcopenia or, or gradual muscle loss as well. And the, the old adage, if you don't move it, you lose it. That really applies to muscle and bone and tendons, uh, connective tissue. So really important to stimulate these things. And, and something is a whole lot better than nothing. And in particular, BFR is a way to induce a strong stimulus with relatively light work, which, you know, these populations cannot perform heavy work most of the time because it's just too strenuous on the body. But if we're able to induce a little stress, that's not too much in the form of BFR uh, with relatively light weight, then that's all to the good. As I was mentioning, one of the studies we did was actually prehabbing cancer patients for surgery. So there's a huge, right, there's a huge increase in, um, or sorry, there's a huge decrease in mortality and morbidity rates post-operation in cancer patients. And because they're post-op, they're not able to move around a lot. And so that really sets them back. They're already in this state where they're losing muscle, not able to, be, to uh, stimulate adaptation because they can't exercise. And then you, do, you operate on them and then they're bedridden for a week, two weeks. So it sets them even further back. They have to have that surgery because it cures their cancer, but you have all these other side effects. So what we, what we aimed to do was um, increase muscle mass prior to going into surgery to one, increase the amount of muscle you have to lose and B, help increase walking after, uh, more recently after the operation. And so two things here, it was a four week study, four weeks training study. And generally you need four to six weeks to really see any changes in strength or muscle size. So in this cachexic population, sarcopenic population, we saw on average a, a four pound increase in muscle mass. That's lean body mass. Wow. Yeah. And all they this were doing the was BFR. Population? This is in a, yeah. So it's a prehabilitation of cancer patients. Um, you can look it up. I think it was published in 2019. And uh, so anyway, that, that cancer population um, really benefited from this. And uh, like I said, four pounds of muscle, pure muscle was gained in that short, short amount of time. Wow. And I will say they were taking creatine, they were taking L-citrulline and they were supplementing protein. So those all have big, uh, you know, they, have, they, they all play big factors. Um, but all the resistance training they were doing was BFR. Wow. Wow. So that, that's huge application for clinical population price of admission right there. Yeah. And I don't know why this popped into my head, but, uh, and it's not, and it, you know, really doesn't apply to almost everybody on the planet, but it's still a fun observation. I would imagine that BFR would be pretty handy for astronauts who there's oh, yeah. hard to have heavy weight on the space capsule. Right. So you, it's impossible. Yeah. I think, I think each pound is like a million dollars. I want to say to, to wow. transport up there. 
Um, so uh, yeah, and there, you know, uh, without going too much into it, um, there are some uh, avenues by which we're going to try to um, send astronauts into space with with this modality, um, because for that exact reason, to maintain muscle at that at in that critical time, um, you know, there's going into space is really bad for you. <laughs> and we haven't really worked out exactly how to, how to address that. I mean, from the radiation to the lack of gravity, changes in blood pressure and cardiovascular reflexes, uh, there's a whole host of issues that occur. And one of the best ways, and this is actually a really good microcosm of, of the issue at large, um, exercise helps curtail all of these things. Um, and so, you know, it, just like on earth, <laughs> helps curtail a lot of issues here. Uh, in space, it, it works. It works to uh, curtail some of those side effects as well of space travel. So uh, that's in the that's in the works right now. Their main form of exercise is on a treadmill where they're kind of pinned in, uh, but that has a, a a whole host of issues with it as well. Um, from the, the actual space station actually jostling up and up and down from the from the treadmill itself. Now they have come out with some like sort of cushioning systems or spring systems to help alleviate that, but nonetheless, it's gonna it's gonna be an issue and. Um, I, I think it's kind of a no-brainer when it comes to, to space travel. Yeah, I mean, even if you can spend all that money to get those expensive pounds up into space, they they become really light because of the the change in gravity. Right. So even on, on the way up, they're about ten gs <laughs> more heavy, heavier than normal. Once you're up there, obviously zero. Right. Oh yeah, on the way up, yeah, it's probably way more, right? Yeah. But but once you're up there, yeah, you're going to you need it. the BFR in order to make that five pounds do something to you. Exactly. Yeah. And I think uh, using BFR with elastic bands, resistance bands, is a great way to do it. For one, um, they're generally, you know, I, again, any kind of exercise is going to elicit muscle strength and, and hypertrophy. But if you pair those resistance bands, which are normally relatively light. Um, you know, barring the X3 bands that are, that are really, really strong. Um, it's not usually enough to really induce a whole lot of adaptation, but you pair that with uh, BFR, all of a sudden now you have a really good tool in your kit to be able to use and, and cause benefits. The other really nice thing about resistance bands is they, the tension becomes increased as you gain mechanical advantage. So the easiest way to think about that is when you're doing a bench press or an overhead press, with a normal weight, the load is the largest um, or the load is the same throughout the duration of the, of the range of motion. And, but it feels the heaviest at the bottom and feels the lightest at the top. And with resistance bands, it's kind of the opposite. So it's actually the lightest, the load is the lightest at the bottom and the strongest at the top where you have the greatest mechanical advantage. So I think using them in concert with BFR, BFR with resistance training bands is a really effective tool to getting the entirety of the muscle stressed. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's super powerful. Um, I know we touched upon nutrition a couple of times here, but I want to ask you a specific question about nutrition. It's the age old battle that's been going on for the last couple of decades, the keto adapted crowd versus the, <laughs> you, you already know what's coming, yep. you know, versus the vegetarian slash vegan crowd. Mm -hmm. So you have that, you know, the high carb, high fiber, high phytonutrient, low fat crowd versus the high fat moderate protein, low uh, carb crowd, where do you fall in there? And, um, and then I have a, a follow-up question to that. Sure. Uh, I think both protocols, methodologies, whatever you want to call them can work. Uh, you have to be aware of the micronutrient profiles. You have to be aware of the macronutrient profiles. Um, 
I tend to do very well on a relatively high carbohydrate diet. Um, and I, and I've seen this in, you know, people, my age, um, I think maybe some things metabolically start changing as you get older and maybe you're or maybe just individually, you prefer to use fat. Um, I think they can all work. I've kind of experimented with various types. Um, but I, I, I kind of want to stay away from this one because I think it, it, it detracts from the main issue at hand here. It, again, not, it's kind of outside my area of expertise and, yeah. um, uh, I think Fair it can enough. kind of polarize, but having said that, I think both can be beneficial. I see yeah. a lot of value in getting a lot of micronutrients from like a vegan or plant-based diet, uh, and high carbohydrates, keeping the fat low. Conversely, I see the idea of using fat as a fuel source in a ketogenic diet is really beneficial and can help a lot of people, especially people who have gut issues and things like that. So, you know, I, I think it goes back and forth on, on what we can do here. Yeah. So on my uh, follow-up one there, and yeah, I, I concur with, with everything you said there on my follow-up, I've tried to keto adapt probably no less than 10 times. I cannot do it. I okay. think I'm a carb guy like you. Um, basically, all that happens is I get super stupid, super lightheaded, major diarrhea. I don't think I've, yeah. I need to up, upregulate my ability to digest fats, maybe more lipase or something, but I can't hmm. digest the fats. I don't uptake them anyway. Um, when I do carbs, everything's great other than I start eventually getting stupid. And that's, I think a blood sugar issue Interesting. or maybe a, you know, maybe it's a leaky gut issue. It's, it's a real, it's perplexing. I've had mm -hmm. world elite nutritionists working on it. I give them my specifics. And one of the big takeaways is to, oh, and there's a crash too. the, the keto flu. Mm -hmm. It's an understatement. Heard of it that. Is, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever tried to keto adapt or not, but not full keto. No. Yeah. No, it's nasty. And uh, it's for me, it's undoable. I get to about yeah. the 36 hour mark and I'm like tapping out, just yeah. like in an MMA fight, I'm tapping out and I go eat something carbs, which fixes it in 10 minutes, sure. fixes right. all the pain, fixes the nausea, fixes everything. Yeah. We, 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 you know, as humans, we evolved to eat all three macronutrients. So this idea of, of demonizing one or the other, I, I think kind of gets away from the issue. Uh, people differ individually and, and you just got to figure out what's good for you. Um, you know, one of the things that we do know though is high fiber intake is generally associated with relatively good health, good gut health. Uh, it's good for your microbiome. Um, on the flip side of that, I know a lot of people who have had great results from a ketogenic diet. Um, so there's my, there's my uh, politically correct answer. <laughs> You walked the tightrope on that one, man. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well yeah, played. But I agree with you on the whole, as we're wrapping up here, I agree with you on the whole uh, fiber issue because, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, well accepted school of thought now on the microbiome, you know, with it is the diversification. Sure. Um, and, you know, getting my pre prebiotic, fiber to feed the good guys. Exactly. It just doesn't exist on the keto profile. So while I may get a little smarter on the ketones, um, uh, I don't know if it's a long-term formula for success for me, because I, mm -hmm. you know, letting that, letting my microbiome diversity die off, I think is a bad move for me. Agreed. And, um, it's also, you know, fiber is really good for multiple reasons. You mentioned the prebiotic. Um, you know, the other thing is when 
you're consuming a lot of fat. Some of that fat doesn't even get processed and you end up just excreting it. So kind of to your point, the, the diarrhea you're talking about is kind of a lack of fiber issue. Um, and I, know, I think another, another good thing to point out is in addition to the fiber, you're also, that fiber is generally speaking, the fiber is wrapped around a lot of micronutrients. So you break down that fiber, now all of a sudden you can let out the micronutrients and it's slowly digested. So you're getting kind of a steady dose of, of the micronutrients or carbohydrates um, from let's say brown rice or you know quinoa, something like that. Ah, well said. Well, we're running out of time. I wanna give you uh, these final couple of minutes. If there's anything else you wanna add or certainly please remind us once again, where we can find out about your work, where we can take a much closer look at Be Strong. I'm assuming there's a lot of videos demonstrating sure. how to use it, demonstrating you know the workout uh, protocols. Um, so maybe just a final thought from 32,000 foot view and how people can, can, uh, connect with you, Sten. Sure. Yeah. I am on uh, ResearchGate uh, and LinkedIn. So if you just look up Sten Strick Anderson, I'm happy to, to, to talk to you. Um, I think when we're dealing with BFR, it's a really, it's a burgeoning field. Uh, you know, I found out about, found out about it about a decade ago and basically nobody knew about it unless you were really in the know or from Japan. And just to see it's kind of an explosion as a training modality here in the States has been really cool to watch, uh, you know, regardless of what company is doing that. Um, now, having said that, I think, I think Be Strong rep represents a really good product, um, a safe product and effective product uh, that pretty much anybody can use anywhere, anytime. And, uh, you know, one of the things we didn't touch on was travel or just people who have a tight schedule. You know, you start implementing this stuff in a 15 minute window, even if you don't have the motivation, you know, sometimes I tell uh, just the general population that I, that I coach, you know, a lot of it comes down to motivation. They just don't want to exercise. And I understand that. I mean, not everybody wants to get up and just go. Um, but if you just commit yourself to literally two minutes, five minutes with these bands on, you're going to start seeing results, going to motivate you to work even harder and you're going to start getting into routine. So it's a great way to intro back into exercise if you've taken a break. Um, and it's a great way to augment or get punched through that plateau if you're an advanced training athlete, advanced, advanced trained athlete. So tons of different applications. Um, I would say this is a, this is a huge, huge jump in the field. And, I, and I'm just excited for the next 10 years to see just how popular it gets. Well, um... If you guys have anything to do with it, it's going to be extremely popular. I want to thank you once again, Sten Stray Gunderson, leading thank expert you. on blood flow restriction. And I will have your all your connecting information in the show notes. So if people want to just click on a hyperlink, they can do that. It'd be a lot more easy than having to try to type in that address in the URL. And I want to thank you once again, man. This has been extremely informative. Thank you so much. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to talk with you. You're, you're a great personality. And I, and I wish you all the best with your training, um, your kids training, every, everybody in your life. Uh, and, and thanks for what you do. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to, to preach this out to the public if, if it weren't for people like you. And so uh, you have a really huge role in, in, in the popularity gained from this kind of stuff. And uh, just kudos to what you're doing. As well. Thank you, buddy. And I'll circle back with you and let you know how everything's going on my end. And we'll do a follow-up show. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Anytime. Let me know. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. For our full schedule of fights on the NBC Sports Network, CW and ABC affiliates, visit unitedfightalliance.com. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify and Amazon Music. 
United Fight Alliance for the fighter in you.